Well, good morning. morning. Glad you're uh, here today and that you survived the Super Bowl, the commercials, and there was no wardrobe malfunction. Uh, Maybe a little bit of an issue with uh, one of the women saying somebody was number one, but uh, other than that, you know, I, I was talking to my wife, Jennifer, and I said, I think she just said I was number one, honey, and uh, she didn't think so, so much. Um, if you're here for the first time, uh, we just want to say uh, thank you for being here, and uh, we are so grateful that you're with us, and uh, if there's any way that we can help you uh, and serve you in a better way, uh, please uh, let us know. Uh, and we'll do our best uh, to do that. If you're here for the first time, too, we're in the middle of a money series, and uh, we typically do one series a year uh, that deals with money, and you just picked that day to come. Uh, So uh, the rest of the year, uh, we do other things, but today we're going to talk about uh, money. Uh, We're in our second installment of this series, How Wise People... Um, build wealth. And uh, if you would, I'd like you to pull out your uh, teaching uh, program right here. And inside that is an outline. And what I'd like you to do is just kind of uh, keep that handy. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand and one of the greeters will get a program for you. If you didn't get a program when you walked in, They'll uh, go ahead. There's a couple over here, Tom and some folks. Uh, So they'll get that for you. And uh, we're going to do an underline thing. So you're going to need something to write with, too. And right in front of your seat uh, is a pen. Um, So that will uh, help us with that. Now, last week, we looked at a minimum wage earner who... uh, made minimum wage her entire life. She was a washerwoman who ironed and repaired other people's clothes. And she did this for a 75-year period of time. And at the end of that 75 years, she did something amazing. Her name was Osceola McCarty. And only making minimum wage at the end of her working life she gave $150,000, just making minimum wage, uh, to the University of Southern Mississippi and uh, was able to impact hundreds of kids with scholarships because she wasn't able to go to college. And we said that she used that for a deeper goal, a much deeper goal, uh, and that was to impact the lives of other people. Now today, we're going on the total opposite uh, realm of the economic equation, and we're going to talk about the guy that's on your program, but I think we'll have a picture up on the side screen too, and uh, does anyone know his name? Warren Buffett. Buffett. Somebody said Jimmy Buffett over here. I'm not talking about Jimmy Buffett, it was Warren Buffett. Um, He's the third richest man In the world, but where he uh, made his money is in the small community of Omaha, Nebraska. Now, you might have read over the past few years that he has given the single most charitable gift 
in the history of the world away. He's planning on giving 30 to 40 billion dollars away. So like if you've got a charity that you need some help with, you might want to talk to Warren. But the problem is he's already given most of it already away to uh, the Gates uh, Foundation. So good luck with that. But regardless of what you think about Warren Buffett, I think what he um, is able to do is he can explain to us how we can build wealth wisely and maybe what we ought to be doing with the wealth that God has provided us with. So what we're going to do, just like we did last week, is I'm going to read a paragraph or two about his story, and I'll encourage you to underline a particular phrase in that, and that's the focus of what we're going to look at. So let's go ahead. Let's dive right in. It's in your program, uh, the first paragraph there. You can read along uh, with me. And uh, this is what it says. Often referred to as the Sage of Omaha, Warren Buffett was born in Omaha in 1930. As a boy, he had a budding entrepreneurial spirit. He used his loving or used his love for numbers to his advantage. When he was in the first grade, he paid a quarter each for six packs of Coke from his grandfather's grocery store, and then he went door to door selling it for a nickel. Encouraged by his parents, and that's the phrase that I'd like you to underline right there, is the phrase encouraged by his parents, if you just underline that. At the age of 11, he bought his first stock. At 14, with savings from his paper routes, he bought 40 acres of Nebraska farmland. During his senior year of high school, he bought used arcade games and and set them up in barber shops and profited $50 a week. When he graduated from high school, he sold his gaming business for $1,200. Shortly after college, he returned to Omaha to start his first investment partnership. In 1962, he began buying shares of small textile mill called Berkshire Hathaway at about $8 a share. Eventually, he gained a controlling interest and became chairman of the executive committee. With foreign competition hurting the textile business, he deployed the company's resources in other industries, mostly insurance companies. Today, that stock is almost exclusively an investment vehicle, and a single share of it sells for $108,000. Now, that's kind of staggering, isn't it? Think about this. Here's this small little kid in Omaha. And he starts to kind of have this entrepreneurial spirit in his life. And it starts as early as first grade. He's taking Coca-Cola cans and he's going door to door to make money. He's buying stock. He's purchasing real estate. Now, listening to that kind of economic kind of focus, you would begin to think, that dude's weird, you know? 
Like, what's going on there? And maybe even more importantly, what about his parents? What are they like? And if you did a little study on his parents like I did this week, you would find that they're very well-adjusted people. They were middle-class folks, and uh, there wasn't any of this kind of weird stuff. They just found out that they had an energetic, risk-oriented kid, and they wanted to feed his passion. And so they did a very scriptural thing. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with a proverb uh, in the Bible on parenting, this is a proverb that deals with how we parent our kids and especially how we help them to understand money. And in Proverbs 22.6, it says this, Train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. And the key phrase is that very first part of it. And that is, train up a child in the way that they should go. Now, what does this mean? Well, obviously, it means that you want to raise your child in such a way that they understand the teachings of God. That this becomes a book that is not just a paperweight, but it's actually a book that you open up in your house and you read from it, or one that's similar to it for kids, and you connect people into a relationship with, with God. You help your kids to understand that. You teach them about Jesus. You actually try to model for your kids walking in his footsteps. You help them understand that unlike other world religions, Christianity is the one that is not about religion, but it's about a relationship. A relationship with the person who knows them best, even better than mom and dad, and who loves them most. But there's a secondary uh, kind of meaning to this that biblical scholars and theologians kind of across the board kind of turn to and they say that you should train this child up in the way that they are wired up to be. You see, God has wired every single one of us in this place and He has wired up our kids in a certain way. And you train up your child in the same way that their internal gifts their internal talents, that you fan the flame on those things so that they continue to grow. You sort of guide them in a way that they are focusing in on the way that God has wired them up, their passion, their gifts, their talents. And if you do this, your kids grow up to be well-adjusted kids who, feel, who have a, a feeling of, of joy in their life because they're being geared and directed in a way that they're using their gifts. Now, Warren Buffett's parents could have stomped out that entrepreneurial flame very early on when he was a little kid. I mean, millions of parents do this all the time. A parent sees a spark of creativity in music or in art or in computers or in working with their hands and for whatever reason, millions of parents decide to extinguish it. It's like pulling out the you know, fire extinguisher and you extinguish the spark that's in that young person because you don't want them to be weird. You want them to be normal. You want them to be in the mainstream. And so pretty soon you do that and it feels like a straitjacket 
to this kid because you're keeping them from their passions, from their focus. And then what happens? I've seen it all the time. Something in this child shrivels up and dies. And it's ugly. It's very ugly to watch. Warren Buffett's parents understood the passion and the energy that he had towards taking risk. And they watched his energy and his enthusiasm as he made profits. And they encouraged it. They blessed it. And they gave him a head start in his life. Now here's the question for us this morning. Did your parents ever notice some special skill, some special focus in your life, some special passion, some special gift? And did they bless it? Did they encourage you in it? Warren Buffett's parents did that, and they did it quite well. Now, the Bible tells us that we should go ahead as parents and we should find the passions that our kids have. It's imperative that you find out what their passion is. And then you fan that flame. But also along with that, it's important for you to be aware of how our kids perceive money and what they understand and what they want to use that money for. You see, the reality is, when it comes to kids, and those of you who are parents, you'll know this, each of your kids perceive money in a different way, don't they? For example, let me tell you about my family. In my family, there are three kids. My oldest sister, Lisa, and then my older brother, Tim, and then me, the baby. And um, my sister was the spender. I mean, when she got money, she spent it. That's what she thought you did with money. Give me money, and I spend it. My brother was more the entrepreneurial. He could take money, and he would try to sell things to make more money. In fact, he sold my bike. True story. Huffy, bike, yellow, blue, sold by my brother. I'm still trying to get over that a little bit. And then finally, there was me. I was the saver. But sometimes, it bordered on being stingy and very selfish. My sister, I'll never forget, uh, she wouldn't pick up her clothes on, uh, in her bedroom. So my dad said, if you keep doing this, I'm going to take your clothes. She didn't listen. So one day he took all of her clothes, put them in trash bags, and put them in her office and said, you can't get your bags of clothes unless you give a dollar per bag. Well, guess who she came to? The saver! And then when she came to me, I said, sure, you can have a dollar. 50% interest, you know. And I'm sure if you're a parent, you realize that, you know, my kids really do. They perceive wealth and they perceive money differently. If you have one child, they're going to look at it differently. And so you have to, as a parent, kind of help them understand the importance of money management in their life. And I want to be real, real clear here, perfectly clear, actually. It's your job, parents. It's your job to train your kids on money management. It's not the school's job. 
Technically, it's not even the church's job, but it's your job to train your kids on how to use their money wisely from a biblical perspective. And how you use your money will be a direct correlation to how they'll perceive using theirs. You are to train a child up in this, to set an example for them, so that when they get older in life, they've got a firm foundation of how to use money wisely. Now, you might be asking, well, when should I start this? I mean, my kid's 40 now, you know? I didn't teach them anything. Well, you're too late. Sorry. But uh, different research says different things, but for Jennifer and I, we started Jordan at age four with this whole concept of money management. And this is how we do it. We bought four containers, and we put them in a room, and there the, uh, will be a slide that comes up here. And there are these four containers, uh, and I can show it to you if you want to see it. And on the top of each one of those containers, we put these words, uh, saving school Jesus and spend. And what we do is we have these on her counter, and each Saturday we get together and we decide uh, that we'll give her a dollar for each one of these containers. We put a dollar in each one of them. I wanted to do a dime personally. But uh, Jennifer thought I was a little bit too tight, so she upped it to a dollar. And uh, we try to encourage Jordan to work for some of this. Now, we're not slave laborers, you know, that kind of thing. But she has three things that we kind of evaluate on Saturday night. One is she makes her bed. Now, she can't do it all by herself. If she could, I'd have her make my bed. But we kind of help her make the bed together, and we kind of do that. That's one thing. Second thing is she has to take her plate uh, to the sink. One day she'll be washing that plate. But right now she just has to take it to the sink. And then the last thing is that we encourage her uh, to do is that uh, she has to pick up her toys. So she knows at the uh, end of the day she has to pick up her toys, put them where they need to go. And then on Saturday her mom and I evaluate that. And we put a dollar in the Jesus container and we put a dollar in the savings container, and uh, when she gets about $10, she has a savings account, and uh, she and I go, and she's most excited about the sucker uh, that she gets at the bank. But uh, we do that deposit. And then uh, we put one in for school because we want her to know that if she doesn't do well in school, she's going to need a lot more than $1. And so we put a dollar in the school for it because we expect her to go to college. And then uh, finally... Uh, is the spend, that she can spend it on whatever she wants. And she's got this infatuation with the crane game. Have you ever seen that? You know, the crane goes down and it grabs something. Unfortunately, we won. I think it was a broken, like, thing in Tennessee a year ago, and she has not forgotten it. And she thinks she should win it every time, and so she spends her money useless, like many of you and I do as well. Maybe not on the train game, but we do. Crane. Did I say train? Crane. What an idiot. Crane. Okay. Now, I want you to know, folks, she doesn't get all of this. Okay? She doesn't understand all of that. But we just think it's so important for her to understand 
what it means to use this different kind of money. And it's so cool to see her on Sunday morning excited to bring her dollar to the children's ministry and to put that in because she's giving to Jesus. And she knows that that's the one that has to be empty when Monday begins because she gives that to God. Now, let me just say this, folks. It's hard work. We don't do it perfectly all the time. In fact, Jennifer, uh, my wife, has been gone this weekend, and when I got them home last night at 1045, I ain't counting money. You're going to bed. You know what I mean? And uh, so, but most weeks... We really try hard because we think it's going to be a great benefit for her later on in life. Now, I don't care if you use that or you use something else, but uh, find something that you can use to actually use as a benefit uh, for your kids so that they understand money and how to manage it later on. And giving her a couple things that she has to work towards has been a wonderful benefit for her, so she understands we just don't give her stuff away. There has to be something that is working there. Now, if you don't do this kind of thing, folks, as parents, and some of you have older kids and you're like, man, I wish I would have done that. But if you never do this and you just hand out money each time that they need something, they could at some point be a greedy little monster. And then they grow up later on in life, and they become a big, greedy little monster. And uh, I just want you to see what that can look like uh, by a show of a, a clip from a commercial. Let's take a look. I can't believe you're turning 16 already. We love you so much, and we have one more surprise for you. day return policy. Just one of the gazillion reasons to shop at CarMax. I wanted the blue one. I would have been black and blue if I would have reacted like that. I mean, what are we, what's going to happen to that 16-year-old girl? Well, she's going to find a guy And she's going to suck him dry. She's going to suck out the contents of his wallet and his 401k. And when then he's broke, she's going to kick him to the curb. And she's going to go find another guy. And she must be stopped. I think we should send her to China. Because if she marries someone in China, remember from last week, Chinese save 30% of their income, and she could learn a lot in doing that. Now, folks, if you're a parent, right at the top should be building a spiritual foundation for your kids. But very close to that is building an understanding of biblical 
money management for them because it will make them wise later on in life. And encouraging them to use the passions that they have to grow and to train them about the use of money. Okay, next paragraph. It says at the top, you can turn your sheet over. For Buffett, investing is not just about earning a living, it's also sport and entertainment. I get to do what I like to do every single day of the year, he says. And I get to do it with people that I like. And this is the next thing I want you to underline right there, is that I tap dance to work. I want you to underline that. I tap dance to work. Look at this guy again. You can see his picture on your paper. I mean, he doesn't look like a person that would be a good tap dancer, does he? I don't want to see that. And then he goes on to say, I enjoy the process far more than the proceeds, though I've learned to live with those as well. I bet he has. The same excitement crackles in those who work for him. In a letter to shareholders, he writes, Most of the managers that work for me, they don't need to work for a living. They show up at the ballpark because they love to hit home runs, and that's exactly what they do. Now, for Buffett, his whole livelihood has been tap dancing. He said, I tap dance to work. And there's some biblical wisdom that we can find in that. In Ecclesiastes 5.18, it says this, It is good for people to eat and to drink and to find what? Satisfaction in their labors. Now, what's the Scripture telling us? What's Warren Buffett tell people all the time? If it's possible, pursue a vocation that you're passionate about. Pursue a vocation that you have passion for. Now, I'm not a big country music fan. I can tolerate it, but I'm not huge. But there was a song several years ago that I guarantee all of you know the ending of the title. You can just fill it in. The name of the song title was, Take This Job and... No! Not shove it. Love it! Right? You are to love it! There's a guy in our church that I know who worked in a factory for 19 years. And it's fine. Some people are great. They love factory work. They wake up. They're tap dancing to the factory. And that's wonderful. But there are some people that don't have that same thing. And this guy just kind of tolerated it. He just kind of got up and he did it. But it wasn't his heart. I mean, he didn't tap dance to work very often. So this past year, he decided to go back to college because his wife was working. And so he went back to college And he's getting a degree as a physical therapist now. And it fits so much more to his personality and his passion. He's an extrovert. He loves to be around people. And I'm so proud of him that he didn't suck it up or try to for 20 more years doing that. But he took a huge risk and he decided that his passion he was going to pursue because he wanted to dance, tap dance, to work. 
Again, Ecclesiastes 5 says this, It is good for people to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in their labors. You know, I think it's a very good thing that you're satisfied in what you do. I think it's worth turning over heaven and earth, if you have to, to eventually wind up in the job that you're passionate about and that you love. Because when you're in a job that you love, everybody wins. You have the best attitude. Your energy level goes up. Creativity flows more. Your relationships at work are easier. They don't, you know, they're not people that you're trying to kill. They're actually people that are friends of yours. Your willingness to kind of go that extra mile for people on the team. Your prayers at the end of the day aren't complaints of how much you hate work, but it's praise and thankfulness to God because He's got you in your passion. You know, when people come up to me and they say, well, Chris, you know, now that the church is where it's at, do you like what you do today as much as you did when you first started? The excitement of starting something. And I have the same answer every single time. It's just three words. Absolutely, positively, yes. I love what I do. I love coming into this gym each Sunday and seeing what God's going to be up to in changing and transforming lives. This isn't just a morality thing that you came to church and you can check it off your list. He wants to change your life and to take you into new pursuits. And it might sound kind of corny, But to be honest, when I walk into this gym and I walk into our church office tomorrow morning, I get a buzz. I mean, I got a lot of buzzes in college, but it wasn't over things, you know. And now when I come into this place or I come to work, I like actually have a buzz. Folks, do everything that you can to get in a job that you love. And I know the market's hard, and I know right now it's difficult, and some of you have gone through unemployment and everything else. But I'm telling you, at the end of the day, it's important that you're doing something that you love. And it may take some time. So tomorrow, don't quit your job and say, my pastor told me to quit. No, I didn't. You stay and you do the thing that you have to do for however long you have to do it until you're able to do the thing that you love. And if you pursue it enough, God will honor that, whatever that is. And counsel your kids in the same way. Let them go in a direction that they have passion for. Okay, next paragraph. It says, for a wealthy man, Buffett's frugality, and that's the word I want you to underline right there. Buffett's frugality is surprising and legendary. For the last 50 years, he lived in the same house he bought for $31,500. He's a billionaire, folks, 30 or 40 times that. He wears nondescript suits bought off the rack, drives his own car, drinks cherry Coke, and is more likely to be found in Dairy Queen than a four-star restaurant. He auctioned his 2001 Lincoln Town car 
on eBay and donated the proceeds to a charity. The winner got the car with its appropriately personalized license plate, thrifty. Folks, it's important that every once in a while in your life, you're frugal and you're thrifty. Now, like I said last week, we don't have a frugality squad here at the jar. People aren't going to go into your house and go, oh, big screen TV, write them up. You know, they're not going to look and go, oh, okay, 18 pairs of women's shoes. Are you serious? Write them up. We're not going to do that. That'd be a horrible one. But it's important to be frugal. So this is kind of a little review from last week, but I think it's important because some of you weren't here, and it'll be a helpful thing for you to see. I read a proverb last week, and it said this. Better is a little money with the blessing of God than great wealth with turmoil. And if you remember, I drew a line here at the top. And I said that this represents God's what? Provision. Good good job. God's provision. And I took another line and I put it down here somewhere. And I said that this represents our lifestyle expenses. Our lifestyle expenses. And I said, unfortunately, what happens is, for many of us, we're not satisfied with where our income level might be, and so our expenses pretty soon, we start going up and 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 up, and and that leads to turmoil. That any time our life expenses go above what God's provision is, it leads to turmoil. And it creates uneasiness and anxiety. And you're stressed out all the time. And there's pressure on you in life. And this gets so ugly for people sometimes that finally all they do is say this all the time. Ugh! Ugh! And pretty soon when you hit that ugh point, what happens is no longer do you give 10% or whatever it is, your gift to, to God in the provision. And you say, thank you, God. And you don't give that anymore. And it's not too long after that, so there, there's, your, there's your thing to God. And then pretty soon you can't give any money to yourself to save. You can't save 10%. I mean, how many of you that got a paycheck this week, how many of you took some of that and saved it back for a rainy day or for an investment? Or so when you're 65 years old, you don't have to still be working all the time. How many of you did that? And what happens is, is this three-letter word, UGG. And some of you are into the credit card thing, and that overwhelms you. And then your spending gets so insane, you just keep going up and up and up beyond your provision, beyond what your income is, and it leads to turmoil. Ugh! And if you remember, what I said was that the key 
to getting rid of Uggs and turmoil is the whole process of having something in here called margin. That you actually have enough space there, enough room, that you can live. And folks, you want to know where peace is? It's found right here. You want to know where flexibility is, where you can go on a vacation and you don't have to feel guilty that you're using money that you don't have? It's right here in margin. And that's where generosity is. When God says, hey, I want you to do something really generous, you're like, I've got margin. I can do that. And last week, we said, no more turmoil. And this week, I'd say, no more Uggs. Let's just become a church that says, we're not going to live in turmoil. We're not going to live with Uggs all the time. Okay, one more area that deals with money before uh, we kind of wrap things up here. There's a thing called the get-rich-quick scheme. All of us are privy to that, right? We all know about that. And sometimes we can fall into that very easily. Now here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 28.20. It says this. The person who wants to get rich quick will only get into, what's the next word? What? Trouble. 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 Now we said last week, if you live beyond your means, if you go beyond God's provision, you'll have turmoil. And this week, if you try to always think that you can do some scheme to get rich, you will fall into trouble. Several years ago, I was approached by a friend of mine who had this investment for me. Um, Outside of Cincinnati, there's a community called Westchester. It's kind of similar to Hamilton County. And he said, we're going to, me and a group of people, we're going to build some townhouses and condos. And I don't want to press you into it, but whatever you invest... You're going to double that in three to five years. And my eyes got big. I was like, this is, this is it. So I went home to Jennifer and I said, hey, can you work at the ER a few more shifts? No, I didn't really. But I went home and I said, hey, Jennifer, you know, this thing's coming. And she's like, ah, well, let's talk to our financial advisor. And so that's her father-in-law <laughs> at the time. And so he and I went and we talked to these people in Cincinnati, and they showed everything, and it looked great, and um, it was really exciting. Now, we were only 1% of the investment, so it was a huge investment. We had a small, small, small little piece, but uh, man, I just felt really proud that, you know, I had some real estate now, and I remember that whenever we would go on our date weekends, I would say, Jen, let's go to Cincinnati. She's like, oh, that sounds great. And I knew where the real estate was, and we would roll in there, you know, with my, uh, you know, my Malibu, and uh, we'd ride into that uh, little area, and I'd say, you know who you're riding with? She'd go, who? I'd say, Warren Buffett Jr., you know? And I just was this investor. I thought, oh, man, I'm, I'm it. And I just couldn't believe this was before the recession. I just couldn't believe why people weren't investing in real estate. 
In fact, I remember driving in our neighborhood off of uh, Robinwood Drive, and I would put my hand out the window and I'd just wave. And I'd go, you people are so stupid. You know, all the stupid people. Why are you not investing in mon- in uh, real estate? And I'd think, I'm going to double my money in three to five years. What are you guys thinking about? You smell something coming? Yeah. Well, 2008 came, which none of the economists, you know, kind of expected. And when the recession hit, there were all of these banks that had to get shut down. Well, there was this bank in Cincinnati called People's Bank. You know what it should be called? Pain Bank. Because it created pain for all of the investors in this townhouse investment. Because what happened was, they pulled back the loan because they had given it and they had loaned out so much money, the bank couldn't exist. So they pulled back the loan. And when that happened, it took everything of this investment. And then I remember going back through my neighborhood and I'd be waving before they repoed my car. They didn't really repo my car. That's a joke, okay? Kind of laugh a little. But it got ugly. I mean, really ugly. Now, it wasn't quite so bad. We were smart enough not to do that. But I had to unpack some of that in many different rides by myself. I mean, because... I had to look in the mirror finally. I had to go to the mirror and I had to look into it and I had to say, this guy that I'm looking at in the mirror right now is a guy who's not honoring God. He's just wanting more provision than what God's already given to him. And I had to face that. I had so much pride, so much ego. You know what ego stands for, right? Edging God out. And I would look in the mirror and I'd be like, God, I'm edging you out because I think I deserve more provision than what you're willing to give to me right now. And I just had to go and I had to look at that mirror and I'd say, God, I'm so sorry. God, I'm so sorry for the fact that I am constantly thinking that you're not enough. You know, some of you today, maybe the best thing you could do is stand before a mirror at some point and humble yourself. You would look in the mirror and you'd say, Why do I keep on living beyond my means? Why do I try to impress people that I don't even like? Why do I try to be more affluent than what I am? Why can't I save? Why can't I give God some honorable gift? And let me just tell you this, that if you're willing to go into a mirror and you're willing to be humble for Him, He looks at you and He doesn't say, Oh, what a jerk. You're right. He says, I love you. 
I love the good, the bad, and the ugly. Whatever it is, when you look in the mirror, he says, I love that person. I just want you to make some changes so that your life will be more abundant. I love that guy in the mirror. I love that woman in the mirror. Last paragraph. Buffett is unimpressed by his own or other people's wealth. Of the billionaires I've known, if they were jerks before they made money, they're simply jerks with a billion dollars. You don't have to underline anything there. I think it's self-explanatory. I don't measure my life by the money I've made. Money, to some extent, just lets you get into more interesting environments, but it can't change how many people love you or how healthy you are. He admits his own flaws. He emphasizes that character, not acquisition, is the key to life. Buffett's wealth wealth clarified for him that money can't buy everything. Money can buy a lot of stuff. It can buy travel. It can buy things. It can buy, you know, an education. But there are some things that money can't buy. And one of those things that money can't buy is love. It can't buy love. Today, the one who knows you best and the one who loves you most wants you to take a look at the mirror in the seat where you're sitting and simply say, God, you know who I am. Because, see, Jesus didn't go to the cross for money. He went to the cross for you. His love for you. And more than anything else, what Jesus wants is to have a relationship with you. There are uh, four tables that are all around this. They're not the jars tables. They're not my tables. They're Jesus' tables. And if you have a relationship with Him or you desire to have a relationship with Him, um, you can go to any of these tables today. They're open to all. And when you go to one of these tables, there'll be some bread there and you can tear off a piece of it and you'll just dip it right into the juice and you'll take and eat. And what I'd like you to do right now is just take a couple of moments Silently to yourself. And if there are some things in your money world that you've been doing unwisely for a very, very, very long time, why not just take a moment to ask God to forgive you for those things? And then to ask Him to help you to do better, to begin some plan. I want you to know, folks, whatever your financial situation is, whatever pain you're going through, whatever your hurt is, God wants you to know that God is for you, 
not against you. He wants you to succeed in every area of your life, including the way you manage your money. But it really begins by you surrendering to Him. And the the band's going to lead us in a song um, while we go to the tables when you feel led that talks about grace. And grace is a word we use a lot, but this is what it means. That there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God simply loves you right where you're at. God loves you no matter what. Even if you've messed up in the area of money and you've got to go to the mirror and you've got to say, God, I want to get this thing right in my life, go to the mirror if you have to. But make it right. You know, every single time I go to one of these tables, it takes a lot of faith for me. Because it's not something that I take easily. The sacrifice that Jesus made because of his amazing love for you. And I go and I just say, God, I'm broken. I need to be made new today in all areas of my life. So let's just spend some time right now just quietly connecting with the one who knows you best and loves you most. And after you come and you take the bread and the cup, if you come back to your seats, we'll have an opportunity to celebrate the gift that God really is able to do impossible things in all areas of your life, including your money management. So let's take a couple moments with God. through this life alone. I want to thank you for never walking away from us, never giving up on us. Even when we totally, royally screw up in this area of money management, you still love us. And you desire change in us. God, we need you. We can't do this thing called life on our own. We need you to open up our eyes to give us courage. If we have to cut up credit cards today, if we have to make a budget, if we have to go to the financial freedom class next Monday to sell something if we have to, God, help us to get away from the insanity of spending and let us believe that your provision really is enough. God, today some of us are broken. We're hurting from other things in our life. So we come right now to these tables through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might touch us. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amazing. 